1 John 3, 1-10 See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves, just as He is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let everyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Well, wherever you're joining us from today, we're glad to have your company. My name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. Let's pray as we come to God's Word in 1 John 3. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege of having your Word. We thank you that it's a great gift to us, and we ask today that you might apply to our hearts and minds, uh, what we hear, that we might respond rightly to your voice. Be at work in us by your Holy Spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a few years ago on ABC News in America, they were running a number of stories about adoptions that were happening at that time. Uh, one story was about an ex-Marine named Jack Mook, who was then working as a police officer in narcotics, but in his spare time was helping out at a local uh, boxing ring in Pittsburgh, uh, a club to help underprivileged boys um, who were coming there to find some sense of connection and community. He especially was spending a lot of time with um, two brothers as part of their program, uh, Josh and Jesse, who really seemed to love joining. But he noticed after a while that they looked to be neglected. Um, they were looking pale and unwell. And then when their sudden uh, lack of appearance one week, when he knew how much they loved the program, um, led him to go in search of them and see what was happening in their life. Well, he tracked them down and found that they were living with relatives in the family, but that they were not being cared for well. Uh, Josh, the older of the two brothers, shared with him that they had not had a bed to sleep on for six years, that they didn't own a toothbrush, that they were just sleeping on the floor or on a couch. And in the midst of that conversation, uh, this older brother Josh said to him, Can you help us, coach? Uh, can you help us get out of here? Well, his answer was, yes, you're coming home with me. And in 2013, he 
uh, took over foster care of them, and then the following year he adopted them. And his love for them, his adoption into their family, really changed the lives of these two boys. And at the end of this segment, they had the younger brother, Jesse, saying, I think Jack is the greatest father in the world. Well, I think this unconditional love is a shadow of the love that God has lavished on us if if we have trusted in his son. In the start of our passage in 1 John 3 verse 1, uh, we read the amazing statement, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Well, God has adopted us into his eternal family by faith if we've trusted in his Son. And we're commanded in this verse to see, to behold God's love. It's something that needs to sink down deeply into our hearts and minds that we might contemplate it at length and understand who we are, our new identity in Christ. It's a different love. It's a love where God shows initiative towards us, just as a parent might adopt a child. And yet in the case of God, there is the sense that um, he is lavishing this upon recipients that are completely undeserving. Because of God's holiness, his perfection, and in contrast, our rebellion, our rejection of him, we're undeserving of this amazing love that he's lavished on us. And I think when we understand that fully, we start to feel something of the wonder that the Apostle John expresses in this lovely verse of God's love for us. There's no reason for him to bother with us rebels, and yet he delights to taking us out of rebellion, placing, in, placing us in his family, making us his children. With that amazing new identity that we have as believers is true, then I think there's a natural question that follows from that. How are we to live as God's children? What difference will this love and this change, this adoption into God's family produce in our lives? How are we to live as God's children now? Well, the first answer to that question is this. Firstly, we're to pursue purity. We live in God's family by pursuing purity. Notice again what is stated in verses 2 and 3 of 1 John 3. The writer says, Now, dear friends, we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. You see, God's adoption of us means that he takes those who had no rights and gives them the full inheritance of being his children, the privileges of being part of his heavenly family. We're not only loved now, but we have this uh, hope beyond this life that is expressed there in verse 2. If he's chosen us to make us his children, then he'll take us home to be with him in heaven. And so we have this wonderful future hope. And the result of that hope is that it will lead to a pursuit of purity, a pursuit of purity as we seek to become like Jesus, as we seek to take on the family resemblance 
The Father is making us more like his beloved son. And so we are to grow into the family likeness. We should want to respond to his love, the grace he has shown us, by pursuing a life of purity, as verse 3 emphasizes. And the present tense of the word purifies there shows that it's a continuous process throughout our life. We need to live up to what we are by faith. We are to bear the family likeness. Now, we all know that we cannot choose our parents, um, much as at times um, we realize that we owe them every aspect of our physical makeup and often our personality too. We sometimes wish it were other otherwise. Uh, we might be tempted uh, to think that oh, we'd like our nose to be a little shorter or our temper to be a little longer or our frame to be a little lighter or heavier, whatever the case may be. But the fact of the matter is we just can't avoid being like them. Likeness is actually the proof of our relationship. And it's the same spiritually. John has applied this principle to our spiritual relationship with our Heavenly Father. Likeness is also the proof of the relationship here. And so we are to pursue purity. We're to grow in holiness because God is holy. The new relationship and hope brought about by God's love will show itself in practical evidence in a righteous life. And if all our future expectation is centered on Christ, then we shall want to be as much like him as we can be now. And this pursuit of purity, um, the growth in our family resemblance, is further highlighted in verses 4 to 6. Notice again what John writes there. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. See, if heaven is our destination, then we must be traveling the road that leads there. And John rules out any exceptions here. Only the Holy Spirit can make us holy, but our cooperation is essential, and that's seen in the dedication of our lives to the Lord, and therefore our readiness uh, to respond to Him every step of the way in obedience. We have to make a clean break with sin, as it were. And that's really the essence of verse 4 and verse 6 in this section. Any deviation, we're told, from God's law is an act of lawlessness, which just reveals the attitude of our heart. Now, we need to keep in mind as we keep seeking to grow in godliness, as we seek to pursue purity, um, that we're not doing this to earn our acceptance with God. We can't earn our way to heaven. Rather, we're just seeking to bear the family resemblance, to respond to God's love and grace shown to us, in the giving of his son. And John reminds us about this in verse 5. He notes there that our acceptance with the Father is earned by Christ and his atoning death after he had lived a sinless life and so could be our substitute. He's really uh, repeating words that he first recorded in his gospel that John the Baptist spoke as he saw Jesus for the first time. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Only in his death could Jesus 
the spotless lamb become the sacrifice for our sin and so deal with what we cannot and win us forgiveness. You see, the glory of Christ is that he was able to bring a sinless human. He was to be the sinless human that came to the altar and so offer the perfection in our place. Perfection in the place of rebellious, sinful winds, wills that we have. And so in light of the cross, you know, we need to ask if we have made a clean break with sin, if we are responding to God's love. Now, is my life still pursuing sin, allowing my old sinful nature to dominate? Or am I now living a distinctively different life with God's help? Now, John simply asks, does your life continue to have a pattern of sin? If Jesus was sinless and expressly came into this world to take away our sins, how can we cherish sin or allow it to flourish in our life if we claim to live in him? Now, it's important to reiterate again what we've already mentioned in this series, that John is not saying that Christians will never sin. He's already warned us against that error in chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, where we're called to repent and to be cleansed of our sin. But we need to remember that such forgiveness came at a high cost, the cost of Christ's blood shed for us. And so grace is free to us, but it is not cheap. And so the mark of true gratitude is that we don't persist in a sinful lifestyle, that we must change. And we have fellowship with a sinless Savior. We're part of his family. And so we need to learn to honor our new family. Now, joining a new family always involves adjustment, right? Uh, I can remember uh, when I got married, I joined Christine's family, the Ryan family. And at times, I think we can fight. We can hold stubbornly onto our ways and not fit in or adjust to the new family. Um, for better or worse, there's adjustment on both sides as you get married and the adjustment happens even before the wedding day. Uh, they've been trying in vain to wean me off sugar in my tea for 25 years, but I persist in having two sugars still. On the positive side, I think my father-in-law enjoyed having somebody to talk sports with, with three daughters and a wife who weren't overly interested in sport, certainly at that time. Now, honouring my father-in-law in that case, um, taking an interest in things that he was interested in was easy because we had common interests. But sometimes common interests have a double edge to them as well. Uh, that came out actually on the very weekend uh, that Christine and I got married. You see, like many locals around this, these parts, uh, my father-in-law is a big Dragon supporter in the NRL. And it just so happened in 1996 as we got married that the day after our wedding, the grand final involved the Dragons and the team that I went for, the Manly Seagulls. Well, we were flying out to Tasmania the next day after our wedding and we had to drive right past their door. And so I couldn't help it with Manly leading 8-2 to drop in on him and his friends as they were barracking for the dragons in their lounge room. He'd set up a huge screen with a bunch of mates from uh, the street and really my presence wasn't overly welcomed as I gloated about how well Manly was going. I really could have thought a bit better about how to honour my new family having just been formally included the day before. Well look, it's a flippant example of honouring your new family. But the implications of this for us spiritually, I hope, are clear. 
You know, fellowship with a sinless Savior and continuing in a sinful lifestyle are incompatible. They just can't go together. They're mutually contradictory, and so no such compromise is possible. We're never to be complacent about sin in our life as a result. To do this, we have to be clearer about our new identity, to be clearer about this new family that we've joined. The famous Christian theologian uh, J.I. Packer uh, said famously in his book, Knowing God, that we often have a weak sense of belonging to God, of this doctrine of adoption not really filling our mind well. He wrote, Do I know my own real identity now that I'm a Christian, my own real destiny? I am a child of God, he wrote. God is my Father, heaven is my home. My Savior is my brother. Every day is a day closer to being with him. He said, say it over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing in the evening. Any time when your mind is free and ask that you'll be enabled to live as one who knows these truths, who's utterly and completely captivated by them. This, he said, is the secret of the Christian life. Well, it brings me to a second answer to our question of how are we to live as God's children? Well, secondly, by not being led astray by a rival family. Secondly, by not being led astray by a rival family. So notice again what John states in verses 7 to 9. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning. In this section, we've got two warring families. You know, one is marked by sin, one is marked by righteousness. One is God's family, one is the devil's family. And the difference is defined by the way the two families live, by their actions. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, by their fruit you will recognize them. And in the context of John's letter here, with false teachers leading some of the church astray, he is concerned about the young Christians, that they will not be rattled, that they will not be drifting from the gospel as a result. Little children are easily led astray. And so John knows that false gospels don't produce righteousness in a person's life. John is insisting here that the infallible guide to character is action. What was true of the Lord Jesus, that he demonstrated his righteous nature in a life of righteous behavior, is to be true of his genuine disciples too. Again, as I mentioned earlier, it's not that we are accepted by God because we do what is right, but because Christ's righteousness has been credited to us through his atoning death. We're justified by faith alone. But if we have been justified by Christ's finished work, we've been granted new life. And so a change in our behavior must follow. If we belong to Jesus, 
it's going to show itself in our character, albeit imperfectly. You see, anyone can claim to know God. Anyone can. But the test is whether the person's life reflects this claim. To which family does he show himself to belong? While I was serving at Chatswood Baptist some years ago, uh, I met several people from the Sydney Church of Christ. Uh, they presented themselves really warmly. They talk a lot about trust in Jesus. They seem to understand grace. And so on the surface, we would see them just as fellow believers. But their actions showed something different to their words. You see, they have a very controlling setup within their church. This is a breakaway part of the Church of Christ, not the mainline part, but it's under the International Church of Christ. And they have a discipling system that they call one over one, where every single person within their church has a discipler. And that person that's placed over you has complete authority over your life to tell you what to do to instruct you and what you should be doing to change your decisions. You see, it was a very controlling cult in the end. And as a person is drawn into involvement in this group, they discover that there are some interesting beliefs as well, that the Holy Spirit is given only at the point of baptism by immersion in their church. Their church is the one true church, and their church is the only one that offers true baptism. Well, my involvement with the three people that came to Chatswood Baptist was to help them leave this group because words need to be tested against actions and the teaching of the Bible. You see, Jesus himself told some very religious Jewish leaders that they were not those who were Abraham's children or God's children, but rather the devil's children in John 8. And we notice here in the second pass of verse 8 in 1 John 3 that John makes it clear that part of Christ's purpose in coming to earth was to destroy the works of the devil, to undo his rival family's work that seeks to draw people away from the truth. Jesus came in order to set people free, set free those who would trust in him. So don't listen to those who reject the truth, whose actions show that they are part of a rival family, whether they realize it or not. And realize, as John says in verse 9, that God has empowered his children through the gift of the Holy Spirit to be able to live differently, to live lives that truly reflect the new birth they have in Christ. You see, this is brought out in these phrases, born of God. He uses that term twice in verse 9. It's a reference to the new birth or regeneration that we have through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the phrase God's seed remains in them also in verse 9 is a reference to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our life, helping us to live in a new way as we respond to God's word to live distinctively different lives and not given to habitual sin any longer. We depend on God and his work in us. And the speed and the depth of change in us will largely depend on our willingness to work with the Spirit, to allow the Spirit's work in our life. 
You see, elsewhere, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5.25, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now here the phrase, keep in step with the Spirit, could be translated, cue up behind the Spirit. We need to keep in step behind Him, not cue up behind our sinful nature. We need to let Him be our leader as we think and speak and act. We need to make sure we are in the right queue. I can remember uh, enrolling back at Sydney University in 1989. It was a really hot summer's day. And we were in the main building in the quadrangle, which has no air conditioning. And I'd been lining up in this particular huge line for over an hour and a half. And when I finally got to the front of the queue, thinking I'd been quite patient, I was told by the person there, oh no, you can't check off your subjects with me yet. You first have to go in this other queue over there. Go and line up at the end of that queue and then come back to me later. Well, as I looked across at this other queue, it was even longer. How frustrating it is at such moments. It's like taking the wrong road, isn't it? And then having to double back through all the traffic and take twice as long. It's like that with our Christian life. You know, if we're forever looking around at non-Christians who are simply following their natural desires and copying them, who are children of the devil, whether they realize it or not, we're reverting to actions of our old sinful nature. We're in the wrong queue. We're supposed to be lined up behind the Holy Spirit. How frustrating the Christian life then becomes. If that is you, let me encourage you today to get out of the sinful nature's cue. Stop giving the devil a foothold in your life. Line up behind the Holy Spirit. Instead, live as God's child. Live up to whose you are by faith as the Spirit helps you. If we're to live as God's children today, we need to pursue purity. We need to also avoid being led astray by those who are not living a righteous life, to make sure that motivated by God's love that has been lavished on us in Christ, that we live for Him and not for the things of this world. He will help us. He will enable us through the work of His Spirit as we depend on Him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the wonderful gift of Your Spirit that enables us to live as your children, to truly pursue purity with your help and to not be led astray into the thinking of this world, to not follow those whose lives and actions do not reflect what you teach in Scripture. For we know that your children will seek to live as our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, did, albeit imperfectly this side of heaven, but we will continue to strain with you, with your help through the work of the Spirit in our lives. Help us, Lord, we pray, this day, this week, to honour you in all that we do. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.